0: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: Welcome to So That Happened. Arthur Delaney is out this week. I'm Zach Young. Hurricane Harvey touched down in Houston last weekend and is already being called the most severe rainstorm in recorded U.S. history. The images of people stranded in floodwaters or huddled in evacuation centers or of rescue workers and Texans risking themselves to save their neighbors have been incredibly affecting. While the storm finally appears to be moving on from Houston and even weakening, there are smaller towns still in its path, and the real process of recovery has only begun. HuffPost national reporter Roque Planas was in Houston during the storm and witnessed it firsthand. He joins me now by Skype, Uh, Roke, you're based in Austin normally, correct?
2: Yes, that's correct. When it became clear that the hurricane was going to make landfall on the Gulf Coast of Texas, I got a call from my editor and asked if I wanted to head out there. So I prepped up with as much rain gear and water as I could and drove a a Jeep out there.
1: And what was your first impression on on arriving?
2: I mean, certainly it was worrisome driving into a hurricane, uh, feeling the wind's come up in the rain and so forth. Um, we we stayed that first night in Katy, Texas, which was quite a bit away ways from where it made landfall, the area around Rockport uh, and so forth. So uh, certainly I wasn't in any sort of uh, danger at the time, but obviously there's this feeling of uncertainty uh, and you're thinking about all the people that you know in the areas that might be affected.
1: So you got to Katy and um, where did you go from there?
2: Uh, From Katy, the next morning, we wanted to try to get to Rockport, which is obviously where it made landfall. uh, From all the accounts that I've read, it looks like Rockport was pretty well destroyed. A lot of people lost their homes. A lot of people lost their businesses. Uh, We were trying to get there to see if we might get a look at it and talk to some of the people uh, who might not have evacuated or might be returning. But by the time we got to around Victoria on the road uh, to Rockport, it was just too windy. You would see things like we saw a semi-truck downed from the wind. Uh, it looked as so though the driver had made it out okay. Um, and there was, uh, you know, any number of signs down, windows blown out of the hotels. Everyone was pretty, pretty much evacuated. It was a mandatory evacuation zone. So by the time we got to Victoria, we just decided we would go ahead and uh, stay there and see what we could see.
1: And you, you wrote about visiting uh, La Quinta Inn in Victoria where a number of people who had, you know, escaped their homes were basically hiding out from the storm.
2: That's correct. Me and my colleague, uh, David Moore, who I should mention is just absolutely uh, extremely well prepared and has done search and rescue missions in the past. And we got there, we sort of went to go see what we could see to make sure it was safe to get out and walk around uh, and started talking to people who were in this lucky day. And we stopped there just to see if it might be somewhere we might be able to, Stay in case the thing got too hairy because it was looking pretty bad at that point. Yeah, basically all the windows were broke out. The you know the the tower had come down and there were sort of char marks where it looked as there might have been some kind of fire there. The during at the height of the hurricane, there was this whole sort of group of people that the owner and uh, manager had opened up the hotel to sort of uh, host people who would stay behind despite the mandatory evacuation order. So, were there
1: any? Uh, particular stories of people you met there that stood out to you can you tell us about any of them
2: certainly there was uh, um, a young couple uh, who was one of the hardest stories to talk to because they had been homeless for a period of months before and just sort of gotten back on their feet and they were you know just back into a regular home situation after living on the streets and then here comes the hurricane And they didn't even really know about the evacuation order until late at night so they sort of stayed there and then a wind came up and as they described it a yeah, uprooted a tree, which came down on the roof of the house, exposing them to the rain. So, But they were too scared to go out in the middle of the night. So what they ended up doing was waiting until the dawn, uh, when the wind and rain were still pretty bad, started walking. And they found that he end and Diane ended up staying there for a while. They were eventually asked to leave um, and, uh, and started looking for a shelter after that.
1: You wrote this week about a woman you met at one of the shelters named – I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name correctly – Dara Cherie Lara Quente, is that right? That's um, Tell me about her. You met her with her, her little dog, Princess, at a, an evacuation shelter.
2: Yeah. She, um, I think like a lot of people in, in the Houston and Katy area, thought that they would ride out to flooding caused by the rain and was in fact correct. But then when they started having to let water out of the reservoirs in order to preserve the integrity of the dams, uh, that's when her street got flooded, and I think you know she sort of woke up in the middle of the night, you know, seeing the street flooding, and then having to get her and her two kids out of there along with their two dogs. And luckily enough, um, someone came by in a in a boat. She seemed unclear on who it was, and at the time, one of the things that happened in the Houston area that I think was was sort of um, a really inspiring thing for people that were living through it. Right, was that all kinds of private citizens. In addition to the, you know, Coast Guard, National Guard, police, firemen, were going up the houses and anything that would float uh, to get people to safety. Uh, she was lucky enough to have that happen and ended up in a in a very um, nice uh, sort of shelter run by the Katy Independent School District, that seemingly like yeah. doing a very good job. Was sort of happy to get out there, but you know, it's sort of one of these stories that, as you're listening to it, um, really gets you because in her case. You know, she had just, but she had just recently been separated. Her youngest daughter was safe with her, with uh, her ex, with the with the with the father, right? But uh, you know, she had just been buying new furniture, buying a car, and you know, mm-hmm. all these things that she lost. And so, you know, she's at the same time she's depressed because she's lost all these things. She's trying to look on the bright side of that, you know, that she's still okay, that her family's still okay. But it makes you think too, because we have a tendency to think about possessions as being, you know, sort of material possessions are replaceable, but she also had this experience of having her father die recently. Yeah. The things that she told me was that she was happy that she hadn't evacuated because if she had just left, not thinking that her house would actually flood, she probably wouldn't have taken the pictures and some of his possessions that she had in her, in the office uh, not thinking that they would be ruined, you know? So it's one of those things that that's the material possession. It's definitely irreplaceable.
1: So at what state were the rescue and recovery operations in general when you were in, when you were in Houston, you were there until when I was there until
2: Monday when my colleague Andy the Campbell came to me yeah. I'm probably going back on Tuesday. I mean, like I said, the thing that was really amazing about those rescue operations is that just basically anyone that had anything that would float was out there trying to help people. You'd see people on kayaks. I mean, I'm talking like literally jet skis, yeah, all around these neighborhoods that flooded up to like at least four feet of water, some places a little bit deeper. Uh, and, you know, really have to give a shout out to my colleague, David Lohr, who was prepared for anything and, you know, came in there with mm-hmm. uh, hip waders and a, a, a flat bottom boat, you know. So we would be going out to do our reporting and then, you know, drop the boat. At one point, uh, firemen came and commandeered it for a rescue mission. And he went out yeah. to try and uh, help a woman who was stranded along, uh, I believe it was I-610, uh, you know, who was sort of stranded, stuck out in her car. Now, another search and rescue mission, uh, mission got to her first. And then what they did is they sort of went around looking for uh, looking for bodies that might have been inside a semi-truck that was down and, uh, uh, and some other submerged cars. But they didn't, they didn't find any.
1: Have you ever seen a disaster of this scale before in your life?
2: I personally know, I mean, I was in uh, Hurricane Andrew when I was quite yeah. young, but I can't say I really remember it. I mean, I think the thing of just seeing that mass amount of flooding, like that much, and especially when it happens that fast, I think really left yeah. the impression on me. I think it's really we're really fortunate that that, that the number of uh, casualties has been as low as they are. I think given the given just the extent of the of the flooding, especially because I think people really had a tendency to sort of uh, minimize the, the the risks associated with driving and so forth. So you see yeah. everywhere just cars that had been completely submerged in water, you know, and you don't really have a clue what happened to the drivers. It looks like the vast majority of them uh, were able to get out uh, and, and back to safety. But, uh, I mean, the, it's it's really hard to sort of describe the scale of that flooding, I think, you know, some of the pictures with the before and after people make little gifts and stuff like that. So you can get a sense of the scale. But I mean, it was really quite massive.
1: Thank you so much, Roque, for talking to us.
2: Yeah, my great pleasure.
1: Roque Planis is a national reporter for HuffPost. You can check out his work at HuffPost.com. As the recovery work in Houston begins in earnest, the scope and scale of the flooding from Hurricane Harvey have ignited a major conversation about the capacity of certain urban centers to deal with this type of disaster and about whether or not lax attitudes toward the regulation of urban development have laid the groundwork for more disasters of this magnitude in the future. To talk about how these issues are playing out in Texas specifically, I'm joined by HuffPost investigative reporter Jason Cherkis. Hi, Jason. Hey. How's it going? And joining us by phone is former Texas gubernatorial candidate, Wendy Davis. Wendy, thanks so much for talking with us.
3: Hi, how are you doing, Zach? How are you doing, Jason?
1: Could you sort of uh, introduce yourself and let our listeners know exactly who you are?
3: Yes, my name is Wendy Davis. I'm a former Texas state senator, the gubernatorial nominee in 2014 on the Democratic ticket. And I now run a nonprofit called Deeds Not Words, which is aimed at helping young women become more active in the political... Conversation and helping to impact change, and I live in Austin, Texas.
4: And so, um, so Wendy, when did it, I guess when did you start hearing back, or did you reach out to uh, friends uh, in Houston? And what what did you hear from from them about their experiences down there? You
3: know, on on Friday night when the hurricane hit, we were all braced for what would happen to Corpus Christi and some of the smaller island areas off the coast of our our Texas Gulf Coast. We weren't really prepared for what might happen to Houston. I think we all understood there was gonna be a lot of rain. Um, and we know from the past experiences that Houston has had that those storms were likely to cause problems for them, but no one really could have anticipated what what happened there.
4: And and then over over the course of that weekend, what have you, you know, heard from friends friends there about how they were coping with do you know people that were flooded out of their homes, had to be rescued, or staying in staying in shelters, or or just left the area?
3: You know, I know quite a few people in Houston. As you can imagine, running for governor, I, I made a lot of friends there, and some had some very minor problems. You know, r- their roofs leaking, things like that. Others did have to leave their homes. Um, Dickinson is a community that's just outside of Houston, heading toward Galveston. It was hit particularly hard. I think a lot of people saw that photo of people in the nursing home there who were literally in waist-high water. It was such a dramatically disturbing photo. Um, And I know a number of people that live in that community that had to be evacuated from their homes. And I do want to make sure that we stress to the... Um, audience that is listening to us right now, that there are ways that people, even in D.C. or, you know, as far away as North Dakota, wherever you live, you do have an opportunity to play a part in helping um, to, to bring relief to the victims of this incredible storm there. There are a couple of different organizations that I would recommend that you consider. One of those is a fund that was set up by Mayor Sylvester Turner um, it's a place that's collecting donations on behalf of the storm victims and if I could just say the name of that yeah. real quick, it's g is in girl h c is in cat f is in frank g h c f dot org and if you make your donations there, one hundred percent of those donations are going to go to provide relief. and then if you know anyone who has been um, put out of their home or is in any way needing assistance as a result of this storm, any kind of economic or other types of assistance, you can ask them to go to disasterassistance.gov, which is really helping to funnel in those requests and make sure that people who are in need are being pointed in the right direction. Wow. And one
4: thing I did notice just is just the resiliency of people in Houston and in, across the region. It's almost like they've gone through this before. Uh, obviously, they have with other floods uh, and then other sort of natural disasters. You have uh, forest uh, fires, um, wildfires that have been kind of popping up every summer, every other summer. And I'm wondering, does, does Texans, are, we, are you guys just used to environmental uh, problems like this, environmental disasters like this?
3: Texas has a reputation for being a pretty tough place. Um, And people here take a lot of pride in being strong and self-sufficient. As you mentioned, Houston, this is not their first rodeo, as we would say in Texas, in terms of going through the impacts of a devastating storm. One of the most powerful photos that I've seen over the last few days was a photo that went around on Twitter yesterday. Someone took who was volunteering at the convention center in Houston where so many of the evacuees have been moved. And there was a long line down the street um, in front of the convention Mm -hmm. center. And it was not a line of people waiting to get in to be helped. It was a long line of people waiting to get in to volunteer to help.
4: That's amazing. It was I, I did see that photo also on Twitter it was such a such a great picture. I'm wondering if do you feel do you worry, though, that there's limits to what we as humans can do that, you know, at some point, Texas and other parts of the country are going to really have to grapple with climate change. And I'm wondering when you came into the state legislature in 2008, how was climate change talked about? How was it dealt with? Or was it just simply ignored by certain factions within the within within the state legislature?
3: Well, I I think there's going to be a really appropriate time to talk about climate change, and I hope we can do it stepping back and looking at the consequences of a storm as devastating as this one. If we as Texans really care about our community, about keeping people safe, about making sure that we are doing everything we can to keep our economic um, success as robust as possible, then we have to have that conversation. Instead, what we were seeing here uh, for a long time were lawsuits uh, from the state of Texas suing the EPA over the regulations that were being put in place to help mitigate against climate change. And that was a, a pattern and practice that's been going on here for a number of years. It's a bragging right, in fact, um, from our current governor, who was once our attorney general. He loved to brag about the number of times that he had sued the EPA to try to block some of those regulations.
1: This It seems like, to a certain extent, The very things that fueled Houston's rise as one of the biggest, fastest-growing urban areas in the country, I think it's been the fastest-growing for a number of years, hasn't it, Uh, are basically sowed the seeds of a a disaster like this. For a long time, there's been an attitude of we want unchecked urban development. There's been an aversion to regulations, an aversion to – a more active role of the state in urban planning and things like that, and you've gotten this unchecked metropolis, which has created a booming real estate market and economy and all that, but at the same time, I'm wondering if you could take us inside sort of the conversation that's been in Texas in recent years, as you ha- there have been other floods, nothing on this scale, but floods that must have made people think what's going on here are we are we in for something really bad in coming years
3: well, there's a, a continuing tension in Texas between our urban municipalities and legislative focus and efforts at the state level. At the urban level, at our large cities, Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, El Paso, San Antonio, Austin, these cities are all working very hard to be sensitive to how they grow, to be sensitive to putting in place smart development standards so that We grow from within, and we try as much as we can to stop sprawl. There's been a tremendous effort to invest in the kind of infrastructure support that can make the consequences of storms like this less severe. But those efforts run headlong into state legislative efforts that tend to be not only unhelpful to them, but in some instances actually hostile to those efforts. So it it's a real conflict and you can see kind of the, the edges of that begin to fray when we face things like we're facing right now.
1: We're gonna take a short break, we'll be right back.
0: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
4: Obviously, in tech in this in the legislature and the state government. There's this pride, as you mentioned, in suing the EPA. Mm-hmm. How do you go from suing the EPA to acknowledging climate change? How do you have a conversation where people don't sort of dig their heels in and uh, and talk about climate change as say a hoax or you know this is uh, anti-business, anti-development? You know where do the, where do you, where would you want to start that conversation? How would you start? How would you start that conversation? It's
3: really no easy task, but I'll tell you where I think we could have some initial success. If you think about what's happening across the country and one of the ways that we've helped to diffuse what can be partisan gridlock on issues, it often comes from the business community saying, we don't think it's a good idea for you to do this. Take, for example, North Carolina and the the bathroom bill there. Take Texas and the proposed bathroom bill that failed in this past legislative session The business community came together and said, let's put politics aside and let's talk about doing the right thing. And I think they had a tremendous impact in helping to change the conversation. The same could be and should be true as we look back at the aftermath of this storm and ask ourselves, what can we do to be proactive going forward and how can we let down partisan guard and come together in a way that's constructive.
1: It feels to a certain extent like we're we're living in an era where urban development, in some of our biggest areas, are starting to run up against the limits of what the environment will tolerate. You have cities like New Orleans and Houston, which were built in areas that uh, you know, in the case of Houston, you're on the edge of a bayou that there's always been this risk of flooding. Um, and as it spreads out, that becomes more and more difficult to prevent from from harming people. You have cities like Los Angeles, which is getting more and more difficult to provide enough water to people living in an area that dry as the city grows out and out and out, and it seems less and less hopeful that there actually is a technological or political solution that will allow areas like this to exist in the way they always have. Is that is that too apocalyptic? Well, is, is 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 that was so sad? Right? Yeah, it was sad. sad. I mean, well, it's a sad situation, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, like, am am is that? I mean, do you see hope that these big urban centers, that solutions can be found that will allow them to continue to exist and to deal with disasters like this in a way that, you know, preserves their way of life? Or is there some sort of bigger reckoning coming in the future?
3: I hope there's not a bigger reckoning. Um, but I mean, I, this I is think, a pretty big reckoning right in itself. I <laughs> think to, to ask the question. You know, we have to ask ourselves hard questions like this. And we have to ask ourselves what we're going to do to make sure that we can – continue to thrive in these economic cores that are such an important basis of the entire country's economy. If you think about Houston and the impact that Houston has on the economy of the country as a whole, it's a tremendous impact, a positive impact. So then we have to ask, well, how can we make sure that we sustain what it is that Houston is able to offer by virtue of their proximity to the Gulf of Mexico, by virtue of their unique positioning to contribute to the economy in the way that they do. Take other countries, for example, other areas of the world and ways that they've invested in infrastructure to make sure that they keep themselves safe and sound. Amsterdam is a great example We need to be having more thoughtful conversations about how we support the infrastructure of Houston and New Orleans and places along the Gulf where we know they are going to be hit with storms like this in the future. It's not a question of if, it's always a question of when. This is the third 500-year storm to hit Houston in the last three years. So we know it's coming.
1: So they're not 500-year storms anymore, are they?
3: Right. And, and that's a little bit of a misnomer because it's really a 1 in 500 chance that your area will receive or be hit by a storm as severe as this one. Um, but obviously, those odds are, are, are getting uh, less in our favor every single time one of these storms hits Houston. And if we're not investing in the kind of infrastructure that will keep it from flooding in the way that it has been, then we're going to continue to see this problem over and over again.
4: All right. Well, um, thanks again
1: for letting us talk to you. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you guys.
1: Wendy Davis is a former Texas gubernatorial candidate and the founder of the nonprofit Deeds Not Words. Welcome back to the show. So Hurricane Harvey finally appears to be moving on from Houston, although the extent of damage it might still do to smaller towns in southeast Texas is yet to be seen. Uh, attention is moving more and more to the how the local and federal governments are going to respond to a disaster and how you even begin to address the damage from, from something of this scale. Um, to talk about the response to Harvey so far, I'm joined by Jessica Schulberg. Hello. And Marina Fang. Hi. So you guys have both written in some capacity or another about the response of politicians and authorities and – Disaster organizations to this, and I wanted to start with you, Jessica, because you wrote a bit about this offer that came from the Mexican government to provide some form of aid. And uh, before we even talk about what that offer was, uh, you wrote in your story about how back in 2005, the the Mexican army actually set a set up a camp outside San Antonio mm-hmm. in which they fed and housed hurricane evacuees. Is that correct? Can you tell me more about that and how that happened? Um,
5: So there's actually a really good uh, op-ed in the Washington Post that people should read by Stephen Kelly. He was um, a diplomat based in Mexico City at the time and he tells of this this phone call he gets where someone from the Mexican government says, hey, we're, we're heading to the border. We're, we're going in. We're going to bring aid. And he's like, oh, wait, wait. I need I need to get this cleared with the government. You know, like, hold on. And they're like, too late. We're on our way. Just, just figure it out. So there's this mad scramble to get everything in line, like visas for these people to come across. You have to, like, inspect certain meats, make sure that there's no diseases, and that it's, like, cleared to enter America. Um, but anyways, there's this rapid response where um, people from the Mexican Army came across in this 45-vehicle convoy. Um, the Entered through Laredo, Texas, and they moved on to just outside of San Antonio. I think they set up camp in a former Air Force base. Um, And they were there for three weeks, and over the course of that time, uh, let me pull up the stats, they fed, they served over 170,000 meals to hurricane victims, they distributed 164,000 tons of supplies, and they conducted more than 500 medical examinations. Um, So it was was a pretty big deal for the the Mexican army, which is like this very nationalistic entity, um, to just come rolling across the border and say, we're here, like, what can we do, put us to work.
1: And has this been standard in the past for Mexico? No, this was actually oh, was a really this? big deal at the time. Yeah. It was the
5: first time you had, you know, Mexican soldiers um, on our side of the border since the 1800s, since we were <laughs> at war with them. So it's considered like this really big kind of symbolic thing that like we are we are truly friends. We're your neighbors. Um, your town has been devastated. We're, we're just across the border. To, like, let us help.
1: Mm-hmm. So flash forward twelve years.
5: <laughs> flash forward twelve years, um, as the hurricane hits Texas, even closer to the Mexican border now, it's in the southeastern part of Texas. Um, the Mexican Foreign Minister offers just broad assistance, says, Let us know what we can do, our are your, your friend, help is open, help is help is available. And there there wasn't an immediate response from the <laughs> US side for, for reasons that, you know, I think you can I think you can fairly suggest there's like some political motivation behind this hesitancy? The president course. has a complicated relationship. Of course, with the Mexico. president has a complicated yeah, relationship with Mexico. To say the least, <laughs> he's characterized Mexicans as rapists when he was running for president. He's as the hurricane... just stand good people. Some good them. people. As the some. hurricane is just hitting Texas, he's he's tweeting about NAFTA and about how he's going to renegotiate NAFTA because Mexico is being bad and how there's like all these criminals in Mexico. So we need to like build the wall to keep them out. And at the same time, the Mexican government, they come back with like this five point bolded response where they say, we're not going to pay for a wall. Um, if we do renegotiate NAFTA, then we're not going to do it over Twitter. And you know crime is like a problem on both sides of the border we should work together to address it oh and by the way sorry about this hurricane like let us know if we can help it was like the best politically savvy classy response and over the course of um, the following days governor abbott the governor of texas who's a republican um, and does have some pretty harsh immigration policies said you know we'd, we'd love to have help like we'll be in touch you know going to get you a list of things that we need. Um, meanwhile, like total silence from the State Department and FEMA. They say, thanks for the offer. That's it. But there's no indication as to also, whether or not they're going to do anything.
6: Also worth noting in your story, I think my favorite part of your story was just the like punting back and forth <laughs> of like the White House wouldn't comment and then referred to the White House says ask uh, FEMA, FEMA says right. yeah. ask state, is, state says ask FEMA. Unfortunately, it's like a very common experience covering this administration. <laughs> it's literally how I spend I mean it feels bad days. to
1: get this kind of crassly political talking about a hurricane, but this president doesn't leave you much option. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's worth noting that Donald Trump has spent a long time now threatening to extort money from the Mexican government right. in one way or another. Right.
5: They're saying let us And so now he's in this things. weird position
1: where they're offering to give him money – It's really bizarre.
5: I feel like if you wanted to be, you know, a really smart operator, you would just say, sure, we'll take the aid, count the aid as like payment towards the wall. Everybody
6: wins like we can move on. It's done. Right. And the backdrop of this politically is that Trump last week threatened a government shutdown over the wall funding. If Congress doesn't include money for the wall in um, the government spending Mm -hmm. bill that is looking more and more dire because, A, we need to gov- keep the government open, raise the debt ceiling, et cetera, and we need a large funding package to help the hurricane victims. So that's happening, uh, yeah.
1: too. So, Marina, you also wrote about uh, the president's uh, interesting decision to pardon Joe Arpaio in the middle of the <laughs> yeah, hurricane. Yeah,
6: that was... <laughs> walk, walk us through that. So Friday night. As the hurricane was making landfall in Southeast Texas. Literally all eyes are on how bad is this going to be? What are we dealing with? That is the biggest story that's happening. Trump decides to dump a bunch of other news, um, including a memo outlining how the Department of Defense is supposed to enforce this ban on transgender soldiers, Um, and then also he announced that he was pardoning the very controversial former Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Opario. So So that happened as the hurricane was making landfall. So
1: like the weekend news dump is a normal tradition for the government. But But normally (laughs) if there's a major disaster, you like you say, okay, maybe a different weekend. Am I right in thinking that this? There was a
5: former FEMA spokesman actually who was emailing with several of us in the office saying that Um, During big natural disasters like that, during the Obama administration, there was literally like a media blackout. Like you would do everything you could to suppress news from breaking because you wanted like all hands on deck and all focus to be on providing information and responding to natural disasters.
1: Does this seem like this was something that they planned and just didn't have the wherewithal to realize they should maybe rethink their plans for that weekend?
6: I mean that – seems to be the case and on monday he was asked about it at a press conference and he basically revealed that actually i think i have the tape of that (laughs) in the middle of uh, hurricane harvey hitting on friday night you chose to pardon former sheriff joe arpaio i wonder if you could tell us what was behind your thinking and as well what do you say to your critics even some in your own party who say it was the wrong thing to do well,
0: a lot of people think it was the right thing to do, John. And actually, uh, in the middle of a hurricane, even though it was a Friday evening, I assumed the ratings would be far higher than they would be normally. You know, the hurricane was just starting.
2: Uh, and I put it out that I had pardoned, uh, as we call, as we say, Sheriff Joe. Uh, he's done a great job for the people of Arizona. He's very strong on borders, very strong on illegal immigration.
1: Okay, we don't need to hear the rest of his spiel about Joe Arpaio, I think. If I'm hearing that correctly, he's saying he wanted to do this because he wanted to benefit from the fact that the hurricane had brought lots of viewers to the news.
6: Right. Big ratings. Yes. Ratings, as he said, Um, which is just in some ways isn't surprising. I mean, he, you know, he used to host a reality show before he became Mm -hmm. president. But it's still it just speaks to this larger theme we've seen this week from Trump, which is that he is so consumed by the public's perception of Mm -hmm. him during this hurricane and he's made a lot of it about himself he when he went to texas this week he made a big point of being like oh look here i am i'm meeting with officials on the ground Meanwhile, also commenting on the size of the crowd outside of this briefing Mm -hmm. that he was attending, and he got up between two fire trucks and waved the Texas state (laughs) flag, and everyone was cheering, and then he commented on, oh my god, what a crowd, this is great, basically, and then... He just repeatedly made reference to the fact that this storm was record-breaking and epic and historic. The most expensive, the most rain right, you've ever seen. it just seems to be so consumed by the scale of the storm rather than the the human impact of it. I mean, he didn't were you with this, any yeah. victims
5: steady there's no right
6: well okay so I I get the criticism I made this point earlier this week that I get the criticism of that but they did make a point of saying look this the, the logistics of a presidential visit make it mm-hmm. very difficult and can often disrupt mm-hmm. the recovery efforts and we should say he is he's going back to Texas later sure. mm-hmm. um, on on Saturday so I,
5: I thought one thing that was interesting is um he kept saying you know after witnessing the firsthand damage of the hurricane you know like i'm so right. moved i'm so affected and you know it's kind of like oh well like i guess saw yeah and pictures.
6: reporters pushed back on that right like reporters who the, were on the plane yeah, with him all the white house reporters who were covering this visit said look he didn't actually witness any. we didn't see any yeah, first i think he said firsthand damage in his tweet um and i also should say to his credit uh during his speech on Wednesday in Missouri, he did have this kind of more measured response, saying, "Look, like we, you know, our hearts are with the victims, and we're going to provide as much aid as we can." Um, although they were very scripted remarks, yeah, they weren't like the usual sort of off-the-cuff, crazy. There's a tone with which he condemns neonazi. But his, initial, <laughs> his
5: initial
1: response to these things is always sort of boasting and relating it back to himself and yes. his ego, and it's like we comment on this every time over and over again for like a year now and every once in a while one comes along like this one that seems to take it to a new level where it's like this is a horrible disaster and maybe like put aside your ego for five seconds and at a certain point, it just feels like you're commenting on like like an animal or something. It's like, oh, the bear killed another deer. It's like (laughs) should we condemn the bear for killing a deer? That's what the bear does except that the bear is the president and it's like – you want you need to comment on it, but it's totally futile because he's going to do it again next time. There's a good another thing. the of being it's a
5: journalist like, right now. <laughs> yeah.
1: Is that frustrating? It's like you you would hope that something would change at some point, but it's obviously not going to. This is just his nature.
6: Yeah, for sure. Um, and I I actually wrote a piece earlier this week about how it's just it's yes we we un we understand that this is his nature, but at the same time, it's still astonishing that this is such a This is like a very, very basic thing that you can do, like show some human empathy after a natural disaster. It's a very sort of um, like in presidencies past, it's just it's like a basic test of like, okay, here's here's how you respond to a disaster. And it's also
5: a fairly easy test. The actual logistics of like a FEMA response and rescue and having everything in place and like the infrastructural repairs like that's that's hard, like that's. That takes a lot of planning. This is reading a script. This is really, really. I mean, it shouldn't even be reading a script. It should be like natural to feel bad for people and to have that empathy come across in public and have people say, wow, here's our president. He connects with us. He feels our suffering. He wants to help.
6: Yeah. You know, consoler in chief is the term that people use. Usually a
5: pretty easy way to get. Yeah. You know, your image boost. That should
6: be your role in in disasters. Just, you know, going, going there trying to understand what's happening, show some support. Um, And he's done that, but it's been so, like, like I said, it's a lot of it is very scripted and it doesn't seem genuine because we know his sort of his, his natural response is always to just make it about himself.
5: And because the unscripted, like seemingly, you know, from the heart remarks are, wow, look at how expensive this is, how much rain, look at the crowds, like, wow, (laughs)
1: like
5: almost excitement about it. Yeah.
1: Sigh. (laughs) Well, anyway. Sigh. Keep cranking away at it, guys. Thank you, Jessica. Thanks. Marina.
6: Of course.
1: We'll be right back. So that's what happened this week. If you're interested in donating to hurricane relief efforts, the Red Cross is accepting donations at redcross.org. You can find a blood donation center near you at redcrossblood.org. There are also, of course, lots of other good organizations to choose from. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. That's me. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. This week we were joined by former Texas gubernatorial candidate Wendy Davis, as well as HuffPost reporters Roque Planas, Jason Cherkis, Marina Fang, and Jessica Schulberg. So That Happened is available on Apple Podcasts. Check out the whole family of HuffPost podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to So That Happened at huffpost.com. Thanks for listening.